Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today, we're going to be focusing in on that discerning the counterfeits piece. I'm going to be talking with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, who have just written an incredible resource for the church called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. This is a book that is going to help you understand why our culture has become so eroded by this broad category of critical theory and how that trickles down into conversations about race and gender and sex and all of the things. So this was such a great conversation that I can't wait to bring you. But first, I have a huge announcement to make. And I'm very excited about this. This is something that I have been keeping under my hat for a while. So many of you who know my story, you know that I came out of Christian music. In fact, that was my first ministry, was being a part of the contemporary Christian group Zoe Girl back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And part of my story is that after Zoe Girl came off the road, I ended up having a massive faith crisis. You've read about this in my book, Another Gospel. Well, at the end of Another Gospel— I wrote a song that I put in the end of the book, just I wrote the lyrics. And for those of you who listened to the audio version of the book, you heard me sing the song just a cappella as I read it. And that song is called Your Grace is Enough. Well, it's just been in my heart and mind ever since then that maybe there might be a door open for the Lord to produce more music through me. I had sort of let that dream die. I had put it aside and I had fully focused on the podcasting and the speaking and writing books, which I am still going to be doing. Mainly that's going to be my main ministry. That's my calling right now. And I'm embracing that joyfully. But the Lord has opened a door for me to record five songs. And these are songs that I've been writing over the course of the past 10 years. In fact, they're songs that I actually wrote to minister to myself. So sometimes when I would be feeling discouraged or overwhelmed or I had some huge spiritual battle I was in, I would sit down at the piano and I would worship. And a lot of times 
songs would come. So these five songs are songs that have been born out of those times over the last 10 years or so. And we've just recorded them. And it's going to release on October 24th. And I'm so excited. The It's a five-song EP, and it's called uh, Beauty from the Ash. That's a line of one of the songs. In fact, that's from the song that was in the book Another Gospel, which is one of the ones we recorded. Another song we recorded is called The Battle is the Lord's, which some of you have heard uh, from just an old live YouTube version that I had put up. And now it's got a full string section, and it is so gorgeous, and I can't wait to bring this to you. So I wanted to point you in a few directions. If you're interested in the music, I'm not going to be bugging you on this podcast every week talking about the music. I'll probably make a few announcements here or there, but mostly I'm going to point you toward the resources to follow if you want to follow the music. So available now is a pre-order. So the album is going to be released exclusively at the beginning through my website. It will eventually be on iTunes and Spotify and all the places, but for the first few months, it's going to be exclusive to my website. And so you can go to alisachilders.com slash music right now, and you can pre-order the physical copy of the CD. And here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the physical copy, which will be shipped to you on the day it comes out. But for that same price, you're also going to get a free download of all the songs. So, you know, maybe you're the kind of person that just wants the download. You don't really care about the physical CD, but you can give that to somebody. You could gift that to somebody even for Christmas because this is coming out just before the Christmas season. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're the kind of person who really loves to have a physical CD. You don't care so much about the downloads and you can can give those to somebody else. But either way, if you pre-order, you'll get all of that for $10 at alisachilders.com slash music. Now, I also want to point you to the new social media for the music, and that's going to be Instagram and Facebook at Alisa Childers Music. Instagram and Facebook at Alisa Childers Music. And you can follow along. We've also launched a beautiful YouTube page for this, and that's also youtube.com, and it's at Alisa Childers Music. And uh, on that page, we right now we have a welcome video up and a lyric video for Your Grace is Enough, so you get a little sneak peek of the music itself. And as time goes on, we're going to be releasing stories behind all the songs on the YouTube channel. We're going to be releasing lyric videos for all of the songs. And so definitely go to YouTube, Alisa Childers Music, to check that out. But again, pre-order at alisachilders.com slash music. And for 10 bucks, you're going to get the physical copy and a free download of all the songs. And my prayer is that it will minister to you. And I'm just excited. So that's enough about the music. But I do want to tell you about some highlights for me from this conversation that I had today with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer about Critical Dilemma. You know, so many of us have witnessed our culture radically shift just in the past few years. And it can be a little bit destabilizing. And you're wondering, how did I have a friend who just said they were maybe questioning some of their beliefs they were given as a child to sliding all the way into radical gender theory and embracing some of the the critical social justice narratives we see in our culture today? Well, this is the podcast for you because this is going to get explained in particularly as it relates to queer theory and radical gender theory. Like how did we get from having discussions on race into discussions on trans ideology that seems to be almost crossed over one another at times? And why is that? And how does that work? So we're going to be talking about that. Um, 
I do want to tell you I've had a chance to read this book, Critical Dilemma. I was honored to be able to endorse it. I think it's going to be a huge resource for the church. But even talking today, highlighting uh, Pat in particular explained how that slide happens, how even things that most people in our culture today would agree are wrong, if you follow the logic of critical theory all the way to its end, you will end with pedophilia and and things like that, things that everybody would agree are wrong. So it's a challenge to, to Christians to really think through the methodology we use when we think through our theological positions and ideas and how this all got into the church. And I can't wait to bring it to you. So without any further ado, here is Neil Shenby and Pat Sawyer. Well, Neil and Pat, I'm always so excited to engage with your work. Neil, you've been on the podcast a couple times before. Pat, welcome. So glad to have you on with us this time. You Thank know, you. for years, I have followed your work, both of you, because as our listeners know, several years ago, critical theories sort of invaded every aspect of our lives. Now, this was back before anybody in the mainstream probably even knew what a critical theory was, right? I think people kind of know now because we talk a lot about critical race theory and things like that. But these critical theories really came into our government, our education system, our churches. And as a result of that, through social media and vehicles like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they've really invaded our homes as well. We've seen these critical theories split families apart split churches apart. So the confusion, the division, the new vocabulary everybody's supposed to learn is uh, just something that's really caused a lot of decay in our society. So I'm so thankful to the both of you that you've written this book, Critical Dilemma, which I commend to every one of my listeners. I was honored to be able to write an endorsement for it. But I'd love to ask both of you just to share a little bit of your story, because this has been something where you've worked together for quite a while on this material, researching. You have different qualifications, different credentials that lend both of your talents to come together for this really important book. So, uh, Pat, let's start with you. How, How did you begin noticing these critical theories coming into the church and what spurned you to to really focus on that and say, okay, we, we have to talk about this? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, I have been in, I was in corporate life. I was a banker for close to 20 years in the financial services and banking industry. And along during that time, I've, I've been a believer. I've been a Christian since about age 19. But when I was involved in the corporate world, I was doing apologetics. And I felt God pressing me to, to get into more and more into the arena of ideas. I question about whether he's leading me to be a pastor or or what he wanted me to do. I, I was sensing that he was wanting me to do something different than what I was doing in terms of my corporate life. And so that led to me uh, going to get a master's and PhD in the secular university. And I wanted to go into a field and to an area of knowledge that might would be a challenge to the Christian faith in order to get some understanding and then be equipped to try to be a benefit to the kingdom. And so my master's is in communication studies and my PhD is in educational studies and cultural studies. And that PhD, and to some extent, the master's is bathed in critical social theory. Mm. And so that really is part and parcel to those kinds of degrees where you're really locked in to the critical tradition. And in fact, in my PhD and my dissertation, my conceptual framework is critical theory, then that builds to critical pedagogy, and then that builds to cultural foundations. And so I was in the heart of that. 
And then I began to see in the broader evangelical church, at least some flirtation with these ideas or either downstream iterations of these ideas. Mm. And that was certainly alarming to me, which led me to continue praying about my role and my part in what I'm seeing in the evangelical community. And then also, uh, as I'm going through my degree, getting a better understanding, also noticing people that were close to me, not just in the broader evangelical church, but people that were in my world, in my spheres of influence and in my church, and people beginning to not only engage some of these ideas, and again, downstream, often iterations of them, people aren't necessarily going out and reading Judith Butler. Right, right. (laughs) But, But they are beginning to say things and embrace things that I know personally are downstream from these ideas. Mm. And so that was concerning to me. And I've been, I'm the worst sinner I know, but I have been someone who is all of my Christian life been about praying and praying and praying. And, And God has been very near and close to me in my prayer life. And so I began to fold in this concern in my just my general prayer life. And then I was also, not to be too long-winded in this, but at the same time, Elisa, I was beginning to pray years ago, God, don't let me waste my life. Mm -hmm. I am 65, 70 years into corporate life and doing well in certain ways. But I felt like that I was on the sidelines in ways that I shouldn't be. And so Mm -hmm. I began to pray, God, change my work life if that's what needs to happen. So these things were concurrent. Yeah. Praying, don't wait, don't let me waste my life. And of course, I wasn't doing that totally as a real believer, as a as a husband who's got a wonderful wife and trying to be a conscientious dad and a church member. So I wasn't entirely doing that. But I just knew that I needed to step it up. And so Mm -hmm. all these things were happening together, these two things concurrent together my concerns over critical social theory and its impact in the church and society. And then also uh, praying, God, make sure I'm at the optimum of what you would have me doing in this life relative to your kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so these things have merged together. And then through a a mutual friend, I met Neil, (laughs) who happened to go to our church. We happened to go to the same church. And then that, that led to where we are now. So you might, yeah, Neil. So, so why don't you continue that story and maybe even back it up a bit in your own personal journey of coming to become aware of some of these things, and then meeting Pat, and then you two beginning to work together on this material. Right. So, you know, I became a Christian in graduate school through reading C.S. Lewis, through meeting my future wife, and uh, and and just going to church with her. And uh, so, I, and I was very. I became a believer. I trusted in Jesus, and then. I think God really brought me to care about apologetics and basically sharing the gospel with my colleagues who were all scientists and intellectuals and often atheists or agnostics. And so I did apologetics, you know, passionately for about, I don't know, I'd say 13 or 14 years of being a Christian. And actually, I just published my first book, Why Believe with Crossway, last year. And it was really geared towards engaging atheists and agnostics at very intellectual spheres with the gospel. So that was what I was doing all along. And I was a very apolitical type person. I still am to a large extent. I'm not trying to go out there and fight the culture war. I'm not interested in primarily in how you're voting. I think it matters to us as Christians, but 
my primary focus is, do you believe the gospel? That's where I was. But then around again, I guess seven years ago, uh, a mutual friend introduced me and Pat over our shared interest in apologetics, standard apologetics, did Jesus rise from the dead? How do you reconcile religion and science? Things like that. But when I found out what he did, this is around 2015, 2016, when, he, when I found out that he was studying critical theory, I said to him, you know, it sounds like what you're studying is what I'm seeing in the culture and even among evangelicals. And through that uh, discussion, we realized, yeah, these ideas are making inroads into the church. So I, I just finished the sort of first draft of my book way back in the day, and I began um, I began reading intensively about these critical social theories and Pat sort of guided my reading and thinking and I began writing about them and being invited to speak in conferences. But always to me, it's it's never been about shaping culture. It's never been about shaping politics. Well, I think I speak for both of us when we say we're primarily, primarily concerned about the impact of these ideas on individual souls. Mm-hmm. These ideas are corrosive. They're leading people astray. And we want to combat these ideas primarily for those reasons. That's great. So we start with this idea of this sort of umbrella term of critical theory. And I this is so difficult for me just as a layperson to really understand the ins and outs, the semantics, the vocabulary. Um, but I think it's important for the average Christian when we're talking about critical theory invading the church that we're able to give a 30 to 60 second explanation of what we're talking about when we say critical theory. And this is one thing I want to talk about after we define that, because one of the things I really appreciated about your book is it solved a huge problem for me. And that problem is that when you mention things like critical theory or critical race theory, people tend to say, oh, those are just legal terms. That's just something that started with, uh, it was in the law and it's not really, so what you're seeing, that's really something different. But at the same time, you're looking out just as the average person saying, I see a connection. I just don't know if I have the words for it. So you came up with the term contemporary critical theory, which I think is so helpful because that's really what we're describing what we see in the wild. Whatever started in academia, whatever started in law codes has trickled down in one way or another and has gone into the wild. So let's talk about what that is. What would be the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch for what critical theory would be? Neil, if somebody said to you, what do you mean when you say critical theory, what might you say? So I'd say critical theory is an umbrella category today that encompasses many different critical social theories, things like critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy. All of those are a critical theory, but applied to some narrow field of interest, whether it's race or class or gender or sexuality. And so all of them share similar concerns, which is why they're all part of this critical tradition going back to the Frankfurt School in the 1920s and maybe all the way back to Karl Marx. There's your 30-second mm-hmm. elevator speech. Okay, that's good. So, Pat, um, when you think about the new term, contemporary critical theory, based on Neil's definition of critical theory, and you can add to that if you'd like to, what is contemporary critical theory? Well, I would... I would mention, and I would echo what Neil just said, I, one thing that's also helpful is that when we're thinking of critical theory, capital C, capital T, we're often thinking about what took place in the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. And we are talking about, you know, an institute that really got underway in the 1920s. And so 
when we're thinking about critical theory and when a lot of people that are talking about it in the academy, sometimes that's what they're meaning. The ideas and, and the theorists that are domiciled to that school, to that institute now 100 years ago. Today, what we're seeing is, as Neil articulated, something better understood as critical social theory, which is an umbrella term for, as Neil indicated, a number of critical social theories or critical theories, small c, small t, like critical race theory, critical pedagogy, post-colonialism, queer theory, feminist theory, and so forth. Now, Neil and I have created the convention, and we're not, it's not original with us, but the term contemporary critical theory is not used a lot in the academy. It's not that it's never used, but it's not used a lot. And the way Neil and I have uh, have articulated contemporary critical theory is that we have taken leading ideas that are prominent throughout critical social theory and combined them together. Mm-hmm. And it's those ideas that we see are having the greatest impact on the church and larger society. This doesn't mean that the convention that we've used in terms of contemporary critical theory and the ideas that we've siloed to it are the only thing that critical social theories talk about. That, that's not the case. It, it's, it's a knowledge area collectively of millions and millions of words and tens of thousands of papers. Okay, yeah. But we are interested in how these ideas on the ground in the church and in society are impacting souls. And so we see four main areas where ideas from critical social theory are strongly impacting the church. And so we have, that's what we've done. We've put together a collection of ideas under the headings of these areas. And we're labeling that as contemporary critical theory because all that we're talking about is downstream from critical theory, critical yeah. social theory, and it's also happening in a very contemporary format. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, contemporary time frame, which is yeah. you know right now. So. Right, and so when I'm thinking about, in particular, how these things have made their way into the church, one of the things I would love to help our viewers and our listeners understand with today's podcast is why you can't just take one aspect and and keep it there. When we're talking about critical theory, you can't only apply that to race. You can't only apply that to, to one thing or another. It's really all interconnected, and I would really love to help our audience understand that because I think back when the George Floyd uh, incident happened, people were, I mean, Christians were like, we don't want to be racist, right? We want to do justice. We want there to be justice in our society. And I think that for a lot of well-meaning Christians, they might have embraced some of the categories of critical race theory unintentionally, not realizing that even if you tried to apply critical race theory only to race, it just doesn't work that way. So maybe you can help us understand that. Neil, why can't we just apply that to one area like race? Excellent question. I, the, the single word answer is intersectionality. Mm. This idea actually goes back prior to Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term. You could argue that it comes from like the 60s and 70s, the black feminists, the womanists like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde. But the idea is that all of these oppressions, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, 
they all are interlocking and inextricable. And you can't separate out racism and sexism and say, well, there's this just this is active and not this. No, they're all they, they are overlapping. And that was Kimberly Crenshaw's main contribution to this idea of intersectionality in the 1990, 1989 and 1991 papers that she wrote. Um, and today, I would argue that this intersectional framework has really fused all these different schools of thoughts. This is why if you read a book, a textbook on critical race theory, it will bring up queer theory. It'll bring up postcolonialism. If you read a book on queer theory, it'll bring up critical race theory. And so you see it in the theorists themselves. And in fact, and there's a 1993 anthology called Words That Wound, which was co-authored by Crenshaw and a number of other leading critical race theorists who are all legal scholars. And in that text, 1993, they list one of the defining elements of critical race theory as recognizing these interlocking systems of oppression, racism, classism, heterosexism, and so on. And they said that critical race theory, keep in mind, works towards the abolition of all social hierarchies and hierarchy itself. So when people naively say, well, this is just a legal field or it just applies to race, the answer is if you read the actual theorist going back 30 years and more, they will say, no, you have to understand these are all intersectionally related oppressions. You cannot dismantle one unless you dismantle all of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I could, uh, yeah, Pat, could please I mention a couple jump things? in. Neil is absolutely correct, certainly. And, and we would also mention that what complicates this, Elisa, is the fact that there are aspects of critical social theory that are true, hmm. that are correct, that are right. And we, we talk about this in our book. Mm -hmm. and, and so it is possible when you're thinking about critical race theory, for instance, there's certain things that critical race theory would claim, like, for instance, race is a social construct that is, in fact, true. And so one could embrace that truth as part of critical race theory, but then not necessarily onboard all the other ideas associated with critical race theory that might be problematic. And so we, we want to acknowledge that dynamic. With that said, though, two things. One, as Neil referenced, the scholarship itself disallows someone to pick their spots, so to speak. And in fact, there's peer-reviewed scholarship that states very plainly that you can't bifurcate these ideas. You can't just uh, unravel the rope into its individual strands. No, you if you're going to be truly against racism, then, then you have to be truly against homophobia as that's being defined by critical social theory and that you can't do one without the other. And so we want to do several things at once. Acknowledge that there are things that are true, for instance, about critical race theory. But then when we're talking about interlocking systems of oppression, that you that if you embrace critical race theory totally, then you're going to be running afoul and being problematic in terms of the Christian faith. Well, we're not just making that up. <laughs> the scholarship yeah. itself says this, and we mm. quote the scholarship e extensively. The scholarship itself wants everyone to disabuse themselves of this notion that you can just take part of what critical race theory is saying and then reject the other, and then that's an acceptable position as far yeah. as critical social theory is concerned. Now, again, we understand that individuals can do that, 
And then the next thing I would say is that critical social theory itself wants to colonize the mind more and more and more. It wants yes. to increase its jurisdiction over how you think. And so since its push is in that direction, now we're susceptible of people not just picking their spots, even though that's still disallowed by the scholarship, but even if they're doing that on an individual level, the attempt to do that will be against the pressure of the knowledge area trying to take more and more jurisdiction of how you think. And so while critical social theory doesn't have to operate as a worldview, it doesn't have to, it's pushing to do that. And then it often does. Mm -hmm. It often does. Because then once you see certain ground, then there's other ground that you're going to be tempted to, to give up as, as well. And again, we're not superstitious. Yeah, we, no. we know we know that this can be done in terms of parsing some things out, but this goes against the thrust of the knowledge area. And then on top of that, as you and I, as we all know, there's supernatural forces at work at times as we're dealing with ideas. We're commanded Second mm -hmm. Corinthians ten five to take every thought captive for a reason. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so this is where the set the difficulty comes because we want to parse it out correctly and identify the knowledge area correctly. But we also don't want to act as if that there is not a strong push here to move these ideas into meta-narrative and worldview perspective. Absolutely. And then when you do that, you've got to take everything wholesale, and now you're in a world of trouble in terms of Christian epistemology. Well, I hope you're getting a lot out of this conversation. I want to take a moment and let you know about one of our sponsors today, and that is Good Ranchers. You know I love Good Ranchers. Almost all the meat that we eat in our home is coming from Good Ranchers. It's American meat delivered right to your door, frozen, ready to go in your freezer. And here's what I love about right now. If you're going to subscribe, this is the time to do it. Because if you subscribe right now, you're going to get two years of free ground beef. And guys, this is such amazing ground beef. We just love it. So you're going to get it free for two years. And if you you use my code, Alisa, you're going to get $25 off your first box. This is a no-brainer. This is a great time to do it. So go to goodranchers.com, use my code, Alisa, for $25 off your first box and two years of free ground beef. I love this ground beef. It's antibiotic and hormone-free, all American raised and harvested. It is the, the best beef you can buy, and it's better than the beef you're buying in the stores because most of the ground beef you're buying in the stores is meat scraps that are coming from other countries. This is all coming from small American farms. So good. So go to goodranchers.com. Use my code ALISA for $25 off your first box. Goodranchers.com. Use my code ALISA. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, what you're saying is so true. It, and I appreciate you saying it functions like a worldview because it really does. If we think of a worldview being the lens through which you see the world, I mean, this is without a doubt for many people, the lens through which they see the world. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. I don't know if you guys got a chance to check out the American Girl 
book that was written on body image about six, seven months ago. Uh, I, have a, I wish I would have thought of it and I would have brought it down to have it in front of me. So I'm going to have to do this off memory. But they even now this book is written to little girls, not even preteen girls, but we're talking elementary school age girls, the little girls that go buy the American Girl dolls from the store. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is an actual page on intersectionality. And mm-hmm. it says in, it, it shows like a hand with all these different types of of uh, identifiers for this particular character that they've put on this page. And if my memory is correct, uh, they have a character who is biologically male, Mm -hmm. but identifying as a girl. So that's one category of intersection. Um, Jewish, so there's an ethnic background. There was, I believe, a socioeconomic category. There uh, was an ableism category. So this character, I believe, if I remember, was deaf. So you have a deaf Jewish trans quote unquote girl who's wearing a skirt to school. And that's really what makes up this character's identity, according to the American, this is American girl, right? I mean, who would have thought that this could come into American girl? But this is something I've really been trying to understand for a while, because as you know, I've been doing a lot of research on deconstruction, which many, even Christian authors and speakers claim is not a postmodern process. But I don't think there's any way you can do the research we've done and say that this is absolutely coming from the critical theories. It's, it's in fact, many deconstruction spaces will tell you you have not deconstructed if you haven't decolonized your theology, meaning that you've embraced all these categories of oppression and their intersections. Mm-hmm. So I think this is really, really important for Christians to understand. And what I'd, I'd love to do is is talk a little bit about, about queer theory, because we, we've never really done a deep dive on that on the podcast before. But I have said, and I know others have said, things along the lines of, uh, you know, once we go, once we change the definition of marriage, once we kind of delve into that other worldview, things like pedophilia are next. And I don't know, maybe you can tell me if you think that's a a far off claim or if you do see that coming down the road. But um, what does, let's start with just queer theory in general. What does critical theory or or contemporary critical theory have to do with gender studies and feminism? How is that informed by queer theory? And we'll start with you, Pat. Well, the the disciplines of gender studies, women's studies, and queer theory are certainly connected. A lot of the ideals, a lot of the claims that would permeate uh, queer theory would also permeate uh, those other areas of knowledge. And in terms of our concern in this book, there is... The, the push by queer theory to try to deconstruct all norms. Mm-hmm. What would be a norm in society? And, and not hold back on any area that needs to be de- deconstructed. Mm-hmm. Now, th- that might be a little bit of an overstatement if we got into, ver- into the weeds about very specific things. But as we show in the book from the scholarship that queer theory is is pushing for the campaign of deconstruction just period mm. and queer theory's heroes are certainly Jacques Derrida and Michel mm. Foucault who certainly are interested in radical deconstruction yeah and and so when we think about deconstruction from a macro standpoint at large 
And then we start to think about, well, are we really willing to deconstruct everything <laughs> and, and every norm, regardless of where that norm is siloed or what is underneath that norm that makes it a norm? There's certain norms that can take place in societies, all kinds of societies that are that are evil, that are wrong, sure. And, and we need to look at how those norms have come about and, and how they're in place. But oftentimes a norm is in place because it is rooted in something that is good and right. For hmm. instance, heterosexuality and marriage between being one man and one between one man and one woman. Well, those are norms in the United States, for instance. But those norms are rooted in epistemological realities that are true and good. And so, and so we, we, a deconstruction campaign, just for the sake of deconstruction, to then an attack and eliminate those norms is now something that is not a, a net good for society. And without mm -hmm. question, queer theory is in the vanguard, vanguard of deconstructing those two very things that I've talked about, for instance. And, and we talk about a number of things in our book. But yeah. so if you embrace queer theory, you now are going to have to latch on to something. You're going to have to get on a bandwagon that will see deconstruction as a primary project and nothing will be left unscathed, including age discrimination, hmm. including the issue of age. And hmm. is it really fair that, you know, that a nine-year-old has to obey their parents and has such limited agency and is not allowed to make certain kinds of decisions, not only in the home, but legally in society. Is that really a good thing? Because, you know, children, uh, we, we know a lot of children are very precocious, very wise, very sharp. In fact, mm -hmm. they handle themselves better than some 30-year-olds that are having a drug problem. So why in the world should we somehow not deal with deconstructing how we're thinking about age and children? And so the issues of pedestry and pedophilia. These things are, are, are within the wheelhouse of what queer theory is not only uh, discussing, but is also discussing in a way that is way outside of how the, the typical person would think about these things. And the language is, starts to get assaulted. You know, we, we, we're starting to introduce terms like minor attracted persons. Right. You know, yeah. we are manipulating language to soften the realities of what queer theory is really about, and that is concerning and dangerous. And Neil, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it away here. But yeah, we we do cite primary sources heavily in all these areas. But in, with respect to queer theory, we have two chapters, and one of which we talk about how this push to uh, make pedophilia acceptable is absolutely in their literature. It's it's explicit, and in fact, you say, "Well, what happened one day?" Well, it already happened, actually, in the 60s. There's a major push among uh, European intellectuals to abolish age of consent laws. Michel Foucault favored that. And he's, again, one of the grandfathers of queer theory. So, and today you'll see queer theorists saying, like Pat said, that we have this bigoted, irrational, traditional, regressive view that children don't have agency. They don't have freedom. We we brainwash them into the system of oppression where they think that they're helpless and we treat them like innocent, whatever. When they're, they're human beings, they should be given power and we're oppressing them by denying them the choice of sexual partners. And that, that we show in the book is that that way of thinking, although it's abhorrent and horrific, but it flows naturally out of the assumptions of 
contemporary critical theory. If you think all of these norms and rules are actually hidden mechanisms of oppression, there's subtle ways in which the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or Christians, they've imposed their values on you. And you have to work then to dismantle them, to divest from them, to uproot your internalized patriarch, misogyny, internalized whiteness. Well, one of the things that they're saying you have to uproot then is this notion that children are innocent and should be kept safe and not sexualized. Well, that's just another hegemonic norm. It's yeah. been imposed on you by the patriarchy. So this is all, our point here is that when you embrace these ideas, you don't even realize, most of the time, most Christians don't realize the consequences of the ideas. Right. And this is all part of the reason that we do spend time talking about what critical social theorists get right, because it's often the bait on the hook. You know, you hear a critical race theorist say something like, well, race is a social construct, and they're right. Or they'll talk about the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow, and they're right. And then you begin to say, well, what else are they right about? You don't realize they're baiting the hook. They're drawing you in. But before you know it, you're questioning things like, well, maybe my theology is Eurocentric. Maybe the Bible's patriarchal. And before you know it, you're following these ideas where they lead. And so we want to put a hard stop and a check and say to people, hey, watch out. Ideas of consequences. Mm. It's just so good. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, this is great. Neil just made a point that is very important that these concerns that we're talking about here that are they're pretty extreme when we're talking about pedophilia and and so forth and we're talking about children this deconstruction project is a natural and, and leading to the very topic that we're talking about now is a natural evolution of the actual scholarship okay this hmm. is not something that Neil and I are layering onto the scholarship right. again we let the we let the scholars in queer theory speak for themselves. Uh, but we also want to mention in terms of our book that while we do address these issues because it's right to do so, we're not just, it, this is not a shock book. Right. We, yeah. our, our concerns around queer theory have to do with things like the deconstruction of theology, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so other factors that are in, in play other than just some of the, the things that we're mentioning now. Uh, there's nothing about this book that is trying to just be sensational at all, but we do not shy away from dealing with the realities of what, of what the knowledge areas are talking about. Another right. thing to emphasize is that we do recognize without question that there are members of the, the gay community, the LGBTQI plus community, that are not interested at all in pedophilia. And that they, of course, yeah, they believe strongly that people that engage in that should go to jail. So, so we right. and we have close friends and family members and colleagues who are part of the gay community that we love dearly. And so, this book is about challenging ideas, not about sifting people. You know, right. our hearts go out to uh, uh, the the gay community without question, and that's partly fueled by our love and concern for, you know everyone, but also because we have close connections to people that are part of that community that we care about and that we love. And, and so our concern is dealing with these ideas and we recognize, unfortunately, we live in a culture where you can't disagree with someone's idea and then somehow genuinely care about them and love them. We've almost come to that position, but those are the, those are the, that position is real and Neil and I hold to it. And so, yeah. 
And, and the book is so measured. I, I, I had the opportunity to read the whole thing. And you're right. It's very uh, merciful. It's very measured. It's very, uh, the tone is very uh, uh, kind. But yet you're right. You, you do speak the truth and you expose some of the underpinnings of this. And this is something that just touches into my world so much because spending the last year or so in the deconstruction hashtag online, like, like you mentioned, most people who have deconstructed their faith are against pedophilia, of mm. course. But what I think people fail to recognize is where their logic goes if they follow it all the way to its logical end. And, th and this is what you'll see in the deconstruction hashtag is people saying things like, don't ever land on a solid position because if you do, you'll just have to deconstruct that. And then if you land on a different, so always be deconstructing. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about even, you know, this whole postmodern phenomenon of deconstruction is it's not just about rethinking your theological beliefs to make them align with scripture or, or say, you know, hey, I'm going to take the tradition of Christianity I was given. I'm going to measure that against reality. I'm going to try and find out what I think is true and what is false and keep what is true and get rid of what is false. That's just not what's happening with deconstruction, with these critical theories. It's it's just this endless corrosion of any sort of a, a of an idea of absolute truth that could be known by somebody, especially mm -hmm. when it would come into the categories of religion and morality. And so I think it's so important that you guys are making those connections for people that, you know, of course, we none of us want there to be racial injustice, right? None of us want that. And so I think that the question is then how do we how do we solve the problem? And as Christians, we need to base what we think is right and wrong on the nature and character of God, not on the shifting sand of, of culture. And so, right. you know, all these things kind of uh, trickle down from one another. But I'd love for you to talk, uh, maybe, Neil, you can start. Uh, on your, your chapter on queer theory, you, you identify four core ideas. And and you, you show us why we should really be concerned about these four core ideas promoted by queer theory. Can you give us a little picture of what those are? Sure. So, yeah, like the, these are, again, these are themes within the queer theory literature you find everywhere. One of the things that you find if you read the literature is the first few pages of the book will say it's impossible to find queer theory. It, 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 it defies definition. And they'll go on for 300 pages. You know, wait, 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 how can you not define this term and yet talk about it for 300 pages? So you have to kind of figure out, well, what are these key themes? And they, they are there. They're not non-existent. But it's funny that they kind of put this hide the hide the ball in terms of what they actually believe. But the four ideas I've identified uh, or we identified it in the book is one, the bifurcation of sex versus gender. They're different things. OK, so sex is biological. Gender is a social role you play. And how they parse that out differs, you know, Judith Butler versus another like a feminist might disagree. But basically, they all agree that sex and gender are different. They think that sex is a gender. Gender is a complex category. It's not just, there's just not just one or two genders. There's a plethora of genders. They're, uh, they're, they're, they involve lots of different phenomena, like social roles, expectations, norms. So it's not just one thing. It's a whole constellation of things. The third idea is that gender is intersectional. So a black woman and a white woman and an Asian woman and a disabled woman will have their genders will be affected by their other identities. So a black woman is gendered differently than a white woman is. And so we can't assume, interestingly, they would mm. say you can't assume solidarity between two women based on their gender alone because a white woman, a black woman will have race distinguishing how they're gendered. 
then finally, the last idea is the deconstruction of all norms. So it's not just gender itself that queer theorists want to deconstruct and show it's, oh, it's all a social construct. It's not really real. They will also deconstruct other things like age limitations on sex. And for theology, uh, we quote from several books on queer theology, they deconstruct notions of sin, salvation, the church, the, the binary being good and evil even. They'll say these are all social constructs and they're all complicated. They always want to destabilize these binaries between male and female, black and white, good and evil. So it's all very complicated. And you can see, like you said, it's a universal asset. When you start questioning whether are there any absolutes at all, that's going to eat away at your confidence in really everything. Yeah. So those, those are the four core ideas. Yeah, that's good. Anything you want to add to that, Pat? Well, I would. I mean, that's Neil's exactly right. I, I, I think that, like we've already underscored, Neil and I are not just having a certain reading a certain narrative that we're pulling out in terms of the scholarship that we're looking at. The things that we're talking about here, the scholarship is very overt about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is not hidden somewhere that we've somehow uh, figured out what queer theory is really trying to say. <laughs> it's <laughs> not that way at all. Queer theory is very, very uh, upfront about being aggressive in terms of the deconstruction of norms mm -hmm. and attacking uh, the very foundation of certain societal perspectives. And again, Neil and I argue that certain societal perspectives that are norms need to be changed and are terrible. Think about mm -hmm. living in 1955 in, in the U.S. with Jim Crow being prominent, that norms are established all over the place that are evil and need to be totally deconstructed and, and absolutely jettisoned. Okay. But it's not sufficient. It's not good enough to just say that we need to attack all norms. We've got to get underneath those norms and, and determine well, what is the epistemological foundation of these norms and are the, is this foundation good, true, and right? Mm -hmm. And then when that is, we need to praise God that something has become a norm that ascends from that. Okay, And so we don't need to deconstruct that. And, mm -hmm. a, and something that you said, Elisa, Alyssa, just a, a minute ago, which is very, very important, you were talking about the fact that, well, what is the ultimate destination of some of these ideas? And when those that ultimate destination is is considered, wow, that's really off. That that's really not good. And and you touched on something very important. The way to know whether how you're getting somewhere is incorrect is often by the destination <laughs> that you will yeah. land yeah. if you extrapolate it out to its full degree. And so that is a good method to know whether we should go, whoa, wait a minute. If these ideas that we're talking about are actually run their course to their farthest conclusion that they would concur with, and then that is a horrible place to be, well, that is a good indicator that the pathway itself is fraught and corrupted with bad ideas and perspectives and claims and presuppositions. And that's what needs to be deconstructed. <laughs> that very, that's the, that's a good deconstruction project. And so I just wanted to mention that because when you reference that, I often in, in teaching apologetics in certain contexts, I remind people of the very thing that you stated. And then also what I just stated here in terms of this helps us identify 
whether these premises and presuppositions are flawed in and of themselves because of look where this is headed. And so I have I'm one thing, Lisa, too. That. We've hinted at this, but one of the things we tried to do in our book is it's accessible. I gave it to my 14-year-old son to read. He can read it. It's, it's made for anybody. It's not just for people that but are your, intellectual. But your kids or... are, like, supremely smart, Neil. That's I mean, exactly they're homeschooled by you. I so. have a typical 14-year-old. <laughs> well, that but, that but may be. What is taken still? But. We've tried to make this accessible to anybody. They don't have any background in critical theory and educational study. None of that. Uh, and, but we do. But, on the other hand... Our book contains over 770 footnotes. And not only that, we talk about how we let the authors speak for themselves. We don't just cite them and say, well, if you want to know what they think, read this book. We will block quote them. So the book probably contains thousands of words, not just a phrase here or there, but paragraphs block quoted from Crenshaw, from Kendi, from Judith Butler. And we say, let them talk. And we do explain some of the jargon. But we want to emphasize this is a resource for the church. When people say, well, you can't even define critical race theory. You can say, well, open up to page 79 and you can find dozens of quotes from critical race theorists in context at length where they will define it for you. So I think it's a really important point because it's easy for you to say, well, so-and-so believes this. No footnote, no citation. Yeah. We want to let them speak. We'll hear from them from their in their own words what they say. That's good. Okay. As we come to a close here, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, I think, for the church in this discussion. And that is the complementarian egalitarian debate. So I've said on the podcast, and I'm I'm just speaking for myself right here, that I would not divide as a brother and sister in Christ with someone who's egalitarian. I, I believe the Bible teaches complementarianism, which is that human beings are both made male and female in God's image, have the equal value, dignity, and worth, but they have different roles to play in society, in the home, in church, um, whereas the egalitarian view broadly would teach same with the image of God, equal dignity, value, and worth, but interchangeable in their roles in society, home, and the church. And um, there, so there's a little bit of an elephant in the room here, and I'd love for, to, to let you guys address this. Uh, you do issue a warning to evangelicals who embrace egalitarianism. And I wonder if you want to talk about that a little bit, because I think that, you know, I, I like I said, I'm not going to divide with someone over that. And I know several really faithful Christians who embrace a form of egalitarianism. But it's almost impossible to kind of pull it apart from what we see happening with these critical theories. So, um, Neil, why don't you start and then we'll let Pat uh, pipe in on this, too. What, what is your message to Christians about the view of egalitarianism? Right. So the view we present in the book, we discuss evangelical theology and we discuss gender. We present the complementarian view. Explicitly, we say, well, this is complementarian view, but we talk about the text, what the text says and what complementarians believe. Um, but we but we do say, yeah, if you're an egalitarian evangelical Christian, we, we recognize that you are a Christian. You embrace the gospel. You trust in Jesus. But there's a but we're seeing, especially within this discussion within evangelicalism, we see a shift from how people used to go about this debate to how they do yeah. today. So it used to be egalitarians and complementarians would, would look at the Bible and they would say, What does First Timothy teach? What does First Corinthians teach? What does the text itself teach about gender and gender roles? And that's and they get different answers out. Okay, and I, we both feel strongly that the complementarians are giving the correct interpretation. 
But that debate, is it grounded and rooted in scripture? What does the scripture teach? What we're now seeing is a total shift away from that central discussion. And instead, egalitarians are increasingly talking about, are women oppressed? Is the text oppressive? Is it justice oriented? What is the lived experience uh, of women in our society? How can we read the text through a feminist lens, a liberatory lens? Those are different questions. It's one thing to say, what does the text say objectively? What is Paul teaching here? And disagree about that. Something else entirely to say, we're going to sort of set the text to one side and talk about everything in terms of feminist theory and power dynamics and lived experience. So we're issuing a very strong caution that once you embrace that hermeneutic, that way of approaching theological questions, you're on a path towards much more grievous errors in regarding sexuality, regarding the gospel itself. So we want to warn, especially egalitarians, that that's a concern. That we need to move the bait back onto the text of scripture and interpreting it according to the author's intent and away from interpreting things and turning to your lived experience according to critical social theory. Very good. Pat? I would just mention that based on what you said, Elisa, in terms of your position around complementarianism, that you are a complementarian, but you wouldn't separate from an egalitarian brother or sister, Neil and I are in the same place. We do recognize that there are strong, dear believers that are egalitarian and that are, you know, sound in areas and, and wiser in areas that we might be around other things. So we, we, we truly, we truly get that. And then as Neil said, when an egalitarian is dealing with, well, this is what I think Titus two actually says. And then as a complementarian, I'm saying, well, actually, I think it says this, well, that's a good faith discussion. Okay. Right. The concern becomes as what Neil, you know, just articulated quite well, when another kind of lens is being put, an interpretive lens onto the text. And I, I will say that if you run hard into critical social theory and embrace critical social theory in a robust way, you will not be tempted to be a complementarian, <laughs> but you will be tempted to be an egalitarian. It's a great point. And you'll be tempted to even go even further. Yeah. than a, a sound, orthodox, egalitarian. And so now we would say that those on the other, other end of the table, so to speak, in terms of egalitarianism now means if you embrace one slight aspect of egalitarianism, now you're not a believer. There, right. there are voices out there in the, the church stating that. We would say unequivocally that's false, wrong, and you should not say that. In fact, that's sinful to say that. We, we, depending on the certain case or situation, Neil and I would give that pretty strong, serious, strong condemnation. Okay, yeah. so let's just put that's that good. out there and, and understand that we, we get that, and that's our view. With that said, though, again, if you run hard into critical social theory, you're going to be tempted towards egalitarianism in such a way that now you're embracing things that are actually false, not true relative to, to the scriptures, relative to how to think about masculinity, femininity, men and women, and not, and of course, we're talking about very specific roles within the family or the, the church. We make it a point to say that, of course, men and women are fully equal, fully, fully capable, fully intelligent, all, all those things. We, we, and we don't just say them to virtue signal. We say them because it's true. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it's right. And so yeah. ho- hopefully we do have some endorsers that are egalitarians. And, and a couple of them even mentioned to me prior to giving their endorsement, they were saying, okay, you parsed it as good as it can be parsed. <laughs> so I'm going to give you an endorsement. Yeah. You know, so we do think if you're an egalitarian uh, listening to, to this show, uh, I think you're going to cheer for the book in a, in a lot of ways. So. That's good. And then you yep. might even be, you know, pushed Persuaded. to rethink a couple <laughs> of things. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, people ask me all the time, does egalitarianism, is that a slippery slope into progressive Christianity? And I always say not necessarily. It depends on the methodology. It depends on how you're coming to your positions, because I can't deny that I actually grew up in an egalitarian denomination that ordained women as senior pastors. And it was after my faith crisis and the rebuilding of my theology that I changed my position on that and saw the error, what I believe is error in that way. But they gave me the gospel and discipled me. So I have a lot of affection for my egalitarian friends. And so what I always tell people is it's not necessarily, it can be, depending on the methodology. If you're doing a more of a critical theory type of methodology, yeah, you're going to land in progressive Christianity through egalitarianism. But it's always important to bear in mind that that egalitarian doesn't necessarily lead to progressive Christianity, but every progressive Christian is egalitarian. So yeah, that's just something to keep in mind. But um, Neil, where can people get the book? And I know you've got some pre-order uh, bonuses going on. Let us know about all those things and how they can connect with you and the book and the pre-order bonuses. Sure. We have a website. It's www.criticaldilemma.com. Criticaldilemma.com. It'll take you to all of the different ways you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, Christian Books has it on sale for $22. It's a 37% off right now. If you pre-order the book from Amazon or anywhere else, you can go to our website and they will give you a free discussion guide. It's 23 pages long, 5,000 words. It's great for book clubs, uh, Sunday school classes, college classes. Uh, it goes through the book and just asks good questions about each chapter If you order three or more copies by pre-order, then you will get a special Zoom, private Zoom call with the Pat and I will be doing on the launch date. Not just you and us, but those of you who bought the three or more copies will be on a private Zoom call about the book on launch day. Uh, But yeah, anywhere books are sold, basically, criticaldilemma.com will put you there. That's great. And your personal uh, connection points, I know, Neil, you're shenvyapologetics.com. Is that correct? Yeah, or Anywhere Twitter. Else? Just Google, Google Neil Shenvey, you'll find me somewhere. Okay. And Pat, how can people connect with you? I am on Twitter at Real Pat Sawyer. And then I also have a, a website that that's that's a really strong way to put it. <laughs> but I do have <laughs> a place where I, I am online at patsawyer.org. Great. Patsawyer.org. It I did want to say one quick thing if we are wrapping up here, Elisa. Mm-hmm. It, the book is certainly an analysis of critical social theory, but it's also more than that. We challenge racism individually, institutionally. We do that in a very significant way. We offer pathways forward for racial unity and racial connection. The book is also very strongly pro-dialogue and dialogue across difference. And we also give an excursus on evangelical theology as an extension or as a subset of Protestant uh, orthodox, small o, uh, theology. And so there is a lot to the, to the book. And these, all that we're talking about relate to the topic. For instance, we get into ancestral guilt and how to think of collect, collective guilt and how to think about how guilt and sin should be understood 
in the context of the church in terms of what's happened in the past and so forth. So, so the book is certainly about critical social theory, but it's also more than that too. And I mentioned this now because a number of the readers that we've had read an advanced copy have mentioned that and mm-hmm. said they've appreciated that. They certainly see how those things tie into what we're talking about, but they feel like that that really strengthens the whole campaign of the book. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank my guests, Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. Definitely pick up their book, Critical Dilemma. I also want to let you know about one of our sponsors, which is Southern Evangelical Seminary. I'm currently a student there. I love my classes. SES helped shepherd me through my faith crisis. You can go to ses.edu slash Alisa and download a free uh, ebook there and check out what SES has to offer. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.